to introduce our next speaker. Um, Catherine Hawkins is recognized as one of Sydney's uh, nutrition experts in women's health and wellness, corporate and workplace health, treating and preventing eating disorders, non and a non-dieting approach to health, body image, and pediatric nutrition. Catherine is passionate about assisting people to reach and maintain health goals by empowering and educating them in an honest and supportive environment. She thrives on helping people understand the sometimes confusing world of nutrition. I know I'm constantly confused. I was hoping to get jelly beans from First State Super, got, but got this very healthy trail mix instead, so that's a good start. Um, as more and more evidence is emerging to suggest weight is a poor indicator of health, it is Catherine's belief that if a person turns their focus towards understanding nutrition and gaining health, then they can learn to become more mindful, minimize non-hungry eating, and understand the real value of food without the gimmicks. Um, I'm definitely st sticking around for this. I need this. Um, so please help me in welcoming Catherine Hawkins to the stage. Hello. Um, I'm really, really honoured to be asked to come and speak to you all today. I have a lot, a lot of respect for nurses and midwives. I've just had my second little baby earlier this year and spent um, five nights with the wonderful midwives helping me get my new normal with two children. But um, yeah, I, have, I'm, I was really honoured to come and speak to you. I think it's great we can make a real difference to how you look after yourselves and how you manage um, your health because I know what a gruelling job it is. I also work currently in a um, subacute inpatient facility on the Northern Beaches um, as a well the senior dietitian there, and um, and the menu developer and all those sorts of um, roles, and work very closely with nursing staff up there. So um, I understand from an outsider looking in, I'm close to your role. So I hope that this presentation is going to be something that will interest you and help you manage your own health and nutrition. Um, through your work. So this is a bit of an overview of what we're going to be talking about. So I'm going to go through a closer look at healthy eating and look that might be some really basic stuff for a lot of you will go oh I already knew that that's nothing new but it just has to be covered because I've understood through doing presenting for a few years that if you don't cover off the basics then it, it can be confusing some people don't quite understand. Um, and then I want to look at some of the barriers that specifically nurses and midwives are facing um, when it comes to their health, because I think that, um, yeah, it's a quite a unique position. You're so busy caring about other people and other people's families that you don't always get a chance to look after yourself. I've got some top tips, so I've put together something quite practical, I hope, that you can take away. I think you're going to have access to these slides after the talk. Um, and then I thought we'd do a bit of myth-busting. Um, and if you've got anything that you can think of, any questions nutrition-related that you may have heard, you may have seen on good old social media or heard on a morning breakfast show or something, and you think, oh, is that true? Does That doesn't sound right to me. Just ask. Um, chances are I might be able to, to bust a myth or I might be able to confirm it or, or I might not know either. <laughs> but we'll see. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is don't wait till the end to put up your hand and ask questions because the, the nature of nutrition and the nature of the topics that we're going through is as we go through them, throw your questions out there and if it can generate some sort of discussion, that would be great as well, okay? Because um, we can learn from each other as much as we can learn from me. So a closer look at healthy eating. So obviously, the most important part of your daily intake is your fruits and vegetables. So this is where um, we're looking at this should be the main component of most meals. Okay, so obviously, as most of you know, they're very rich in fibre, vitamins, minerals and antioxidants. And we know from numerous, numerous, numerous studies that people that have a higher intake of fruits and vegetables have less incident of things like um, bowel disease and cancers and things like that. How do you increase your intake? you add it to the food you're already eating. Oh, I've skipped a thing. How do you increase your intake? You add it to food that you're already eating. 
So adding fruit to your morning breakfast, adding salad to a ham and cheese sandwich, any opportunity you get to add fruit and vegetables to a meal, just add them. That's what I've always said to patients in private practice. I'm not going to stop you from eating anything. What I'm going to do is make you add something to your meal all the time. Health isn't about restricting what you're eating. It's about making what you're eating the best quality you can. Fruits and vegetables are right up there with quality. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask um, if you know much about like organic, um, like they say organic like, versus yeah, store bought. Like, yeah, they yep. say it's like the bioavailability is higher. Higher. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering, like, is that true? Should we actually be sure? So there's a question about organic fruits and vegetables versus your um, stuff that you buy at Coles and Woolworths. It's a great question. So this is a bit like. It depends. If you've got infinite finances and time, you can shop organic and it would be great. There is some evidence to say that the organic food is more, the nutrients in the organic fruits and vegetables are more available to us, bioavailable, bio so they do um, absorb better into our system. And it's not even that they're better quality, it's, it's just more nutrient dense. So a lot of what we're eating has been grown quickly. It's been grown in soil that's probably been depleted of a lot of the vitamins and things. So you're getting, you know, an apple might be quite fluffy and flowery and huge and an organic apple will be smaller and you'll eat it and go, oh, this tastes a lot sweeter or whatever. So it's, you get more bang for your buck, so to speak. Um, but it is a very expensive way to shop if you're feeding a family. It can be quite impractical. Personally, I choose that if I'm going to buy something organic, I buy organic meat because the, you can't wash meat. <laughs> so you can't wash off what's in the meat, if that makes sense. So fruits and vegetables that you buy from Coles and Woolies, a lot of what we worry about is the surface area, the wax and the pesticides and things like that that, the, um, that is not part of the organic fruit. So I just take that home. If you wash your fruits and vegetables, they do sell a fruit and vegetable wash, which is a bit fancy, but you can just wash them in a bit of white vinegar or apple cider vinegar and hot water. Fill up a sink with water and vinegar, put your fruits and vegetables in it, walk away, unpack the rest of your shopping, come back, give them a good wipe over and scrub to get the waxy stuff off, dry them off and put them in the fridge. That's how I do it because I don't have endless funds to go and buy all these organic apples so my child can take one bite of each one. Um, so... But the meat, the hormones and, the, and whatever it is that the cows and the sheep and things are being fed is actually in the muscle. So you can't soak that in hot water and vinegar. So I would rather be putting my money into grass-fed organic meat and not into the fruits and vegetables. So I hope that's answered your question. It's a bit of what you can do for yourself. Um, so carbohydrates. So most of you would have heard about low GI and high GI carbohydrates. Just a quick recap because we do talk about this when we talk about the types of food you should be eating. Low GI carbohydrates. Uh, so does anybody, does everybody know, understand GI, glycosemic index? Yep. So basically GI refers to how quickly a carbohydrate or a sugar is released into the bloodstream after it's ingested. So if you eat a piece of bread, it goes into the tummy, it's broken down and glucose is released into your bloodstream and that's what gives you energy and tr uh, triggers the insulin response. If it's a low GI food, the, blood, um, the glucose is released very, very slowly into the bloodstream. If it's a high GI food, something that you would give a diabetic patient, a jelly bean, some leucosade, something like that, boom, straight away you've got sugar into the blood and it's quick spike, like we see in the red line. The problem with that is that you also get a really quick insulin response in a, in a non-diabetic person, okay? So what we want is we want low GI steady um, release of glucose into the bloodstream. So every time we're talking about a carbohydrate component of your meal, we're talking about a low carbohydrate. And these are the examples of... Oh, I'm too heavy-handed with this clicker. Oh, it's a funny one. Yeah. So these are um, the foods that are low, the options for you that are low GI carbohydrates. So if you run your finger down, there's sorts of things that you're probably eating um, anyway. 
Things like basmati rice, so a lot of people will say brown rice is the best rice. It's actually basmati or long grain rice, which is the low GI, and you can actually get a brown basmati rice now if you wanted to go really OTT and be super <laughs> duper healthy. Um, <laughs> I just prefer the basmati. But again, it depends on the meal you're cooking. Like you might be cooking a stir fry that the brown rice just works better with, you know, and it is higher in fibre. So it's not that anything's particularly bad, but when we're talking about sustained energy and the right choices for people for long-term health, we want to make most of your carbohydrates low GI. And the high GI ones, the ones to try and avoid are listed here. Most of them are fairly obvious. I've got a tiny, tiny written. Um, things that surprise people are the white pasta and the white bread and wraps and things like that. So, you know, again, if it's appropriate, if it's something that's appropriate to the meal, by all means add it. If you're having a barbecue, have a white bread sausage sizzle, don't worry about it. But if you're taking a sandwich to work, make sure it's a multi-grain, dense um, bread. Anyway, avoid, so why do we avoid the high GI carbohydrates? Basically, what we were just talking about, spikes in blood sugar, it makes the um, body work really hard to clear the glucose, So, and then what you end up with is you, you get a huge insulin response and you crash. Okay, so that's what everybody says. They have their um, sugar hit at 3 p.m., and then at 5 p.m. they're like ravenous again and feeling really lethargic and all the rest of it. But if they'd had something with a good quality protein, it will provide them with a lot more satiety. So adding a protein to most meals, and that's what we'll talk about later on as well, but adding a protein, so something like peanut butter to a sandwich, um, some lentils to something, some low fat, um, not low fat, some natural dairy, so something like a Greek yogurt, nuts and seeds, eggs, those sorts of proteins. If you're having them regularly, they will also help to um, stabilise blood sugars. Okay, so the big thing, and this is one of the, um, one of the big things, I suppose, is the fats. I did it. So reduce unhealthy fats. So this is where we can make a real impact on our health because we're not just saying to cut fat out, but as you'll see, we're saying to replace fat, the unhealthy fats with healthy fats. So here's a list of the really unhealthy fats. So the saturated and trans fats. These are the ones that are causing all the problems in the patients that you see with the high cholesterol, the high blood pressure, you know, irritable bowel, everything that you, that you can think of that goes on with this, particularly with the gut or with cardiovascular, you're looking at being often having a um, history of having high saturated or trans fats in the diet. Uh, you sorry, want to can we just ask about coconut oil? Because it's yes. supposed to be a healthy oil. Yes, so coconut oil. Coconut oil became famous by a guy called Pete Evans, I think. He probably started making it famous. Yeah, so coconut oil's been around since Jesus, like it, it's been around a really long time. We've off, always had coconut oil, but for some reason in 2019, everything has to have coconut oil in it. it look, it became very famous from um, the, you know, the, that sort of wellness group that thought it was more um, pure. I know Rachel Finch likes to put it in her mouth and swish it around. Like I've seen all this stuff on, on Instagram. It's also um, very similar to a, it, it, or it is a um, saturated fat. It's got a slightly different structure, but in the body it behaves as a saturated fat. So it's not to say again that it doesn't have its place, and it's probably better than going for something else like a um, trans fat, like a margarine. I would say go for coconut oil, and if it's appropriate in the, what you're cooking, and if it's an appropriate oil to cook in, then cook it. But I wouldn't go out of my way to add coconut oil to your food. The gold standard in fats and oils is olive oil. That's what all the research has been done in. That's the Mediterranean diet, and that's the cardioprotective oils. Okay, so yeah, it's it's unfortunate, and this is where nutrition is really, really. It, it wasn't when I was studying nutrition. We didn't have this sort. We didn't have social media. We, well, even if we did, we weren't on it, and we certainly didn't have this celebrity cult nutrition experts. And since I was practicing in private practice, it actually became really taxing because I found that I was sitting there for hours on end um, trying to convince people that I knew what I was talking about and that what they had brought into me or these video clips or whatever of people or these diets that they wanted to try weren't actually evidence-based and that I wasn't prepared to help them implement them and it was it was really 
you know, it was draining as a profession. And I think a lot of dietitians have found the same thing. I fortunately went on maternity leave with my first daughter halfway through all that. And I thought, oh my God, I can't go back to dietetics. I've got to do something else in my life. But I did go back and I really enjoyed going back because I went back with a bit of a fresh mind. And I thought, no, I'm not actually going to worry about that side of things anymore. I'm just going to stick to what I know. Um, but it is so confusing for people out there. It really is. So I can see why, um, sorry to rant on about, the question was just simply coconut oil. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so maple syrup is another one that people um, like to add to everything at the moment because it's supposedly, um, I think that the, they're saying it doesn't have fructose in it and that's why it's more healthy because fructose will damage the liver. I don't really know what the background for them is. Maple syrup is very, very high GI, very high. Honey is low GI. Honey has fructose in it. The liver's going to cope with the amount of fructose in honey. Our liver is, these are the people that, that want to also want you to detox yourself. So we've got a liver, it detoxes us for us. We don't need to detox ourselves. So again, I think maple syrup might be having a moment. I don't know. Yeah, so um, I, would steer, I would be really steering clear of anything that's really, that just sounds wacky. You know, like I saw, saw somebody the other day on... She's a friend of mine who's turned into a wellness blogger and she put on Instagram her overnight oats that she makes for her kids and it was oats, coconut milk, cacao powder, a ta two tablespoons of maple syrup and then some nuts and seeds sprinkled on top and I was like, oh, my children get Greek yogurt and oats and that's it and a bit of grated apple, you know, it's just... But what I'm doing sounds boring. Nobody's going to read an Instagram where I say, just soak your oats in water and add a bit of Greek yogurt and grated apple and your three-year-old will eat it. They're going to go, no, I want the maple syrup and the cacao powder because it's much more exotic and, you know, I don't know. It, it's just where we're at. So maple syrup, coconut oil, all those things, you've got to sort of take a step back and go back to basics and think, you know, honey. Honey's natural, honey's low GI. So if you stick to the low GI rule, you're not going to go too wrong. Okay, yeah, did you have a question? Yeah, hello. Butter, oh, sorry, another question first. Um, his, can you um, help with this dilemma? So in where I work, there's a big morning tea once a week yes. that each department takes turns in providing. Yes. How can you get vegetables into a morning tea? People oh, are you very, should come to the dietitian apart department. From, apart, from, <laughs> apart from the obvious the celery and carrot yeah. sticks because it's a finger food thing. Yeah. So have you got some suggestions? Because otherwise it does end up being the, the trans fat list. Yes. It's all on it. Yes. It's all on the table. And hospitals, it's so funny, isn't it? Like we, I work in hospitals. I worked at, in St Vincent's when I graduated and did years there and used to love go going onto all the wards and be like, oh, what's in the nurse's station? <laughs> because there's always like a cake or a chocolates or something left over from their morning teas. I think it's a funny thing that we do because we work in health and we and we have our big morning teas, but I know what you're saying. So apart from having the dips and, fit and um, carrot sticks and celery sticks, in terms of getting vegetables into a morning tea, look, encouraging people to make things like um, zucchini fritters or the more savoury type things, or, or maybe even just saying, look, we're going to have a savoury morning tea or we're going to do a healthy morning tea. Um, I'm just trying to think what sorts of things we do. We do like the savoury muffins, Zucchini fritters, scones, did you say? Yeah, pumpkin scones. So all of those things, the little bliss balls, which I know are also having a moment, but they're actually very helpful because you can roll a lot of stuff into those. Um, but they're um, dried fruit based, but again, dried fruit is low GI as opposed to something really sugary and fatty. So yeah, I think it's just making some rules around it and saying, you had something, oh, sorry. Hi, um, just wanted to know what you can use as a sweetener if you're not eating um, animal products. So if you're not, you can't eat honey, or you've chosen not to eat yeah, honey. Yeah. I think that's where maple syrup has come from. But is there yeah, a healthier maybe, alternative yeah. to to sweetener? Yep. Yeah, just some like if you're not. The question was about if you're vegan and you're not having animal products. So what's a good alternative to honey as a sweetener? Dried fruit is always good. I don't know how that would go though if you're baking. I mean, I know. Um, maple syrup you can use to bake. Um, see, rice syrup is also very high GI, so I don't actually think that there's a lot of a way to get around it. It's a funny, it's, we do like to make 
unhealthy food healthy. It's a bit of an obsession in this country. I want a cake. How can I make it really, really healthy? It's like, just make a cake and have it very infrequently is my advice. <laughs> so don't make a cake every day and say, I'm going to try and put vegetables and maple syrup and into it and make it really, really healthy and then I'm going to eat one every day. Have a cake at birthdays, have a cake at Christmas, have a cake when someone leaves the department, have a cake when someone has a baby. That's it. The rest of the time, just have healthy food. Stevia is an okay option, but again, it's very, very sweet. So the thing with the artificial sweeteners is um, they have done studies that show that even though you're having an artificial sweetener, it's not sugar, and technically, so some of those chemical ones from back in Oprah's day, they actually just go straight through the body. They don't get absorbed at all. But there is some evidence in some studies that show that the sweet taste in the mouth can start to trigger an insulin response anyway. Because the body... Yes. Um, sorry, just because you've mentioned fruits earlier, just in terms of the caloric intake and the yeah. amount of natural sugar, yeah. um, what's the moderate um, sort of like... Because some people have a lot of fruit intake yep. thinking it's... It's a yeah. healthy, um, you know, uh, addition. I love fruit. I think, so the, I, the guidelines are two, two pieces of fruit a day. So it's two and five, two fruits and five serves of vegetables. But, and here's the but, if you're going to have three pieces of fruit in a day, that's okay. Because when you have that third piece of fruit, if you don't have it, what's the alternative? A cake or a biscuit and cheese. So I'd rather you have the third piece. Do you know what I mean? It's so two pieces is the guidelines, but don't sit back and go, oh my God, I'm gonna to have to go to the vending machine because I've had my two pieces of fruit and I can't possibly have any more. So, you know, I, I'm a prime example. I would easily have three pieces of fruit plus a day if you added up um, the dried fruit and stuff as well. So don't go, I, I, I want you to go home and think I don't need to res ever restrict my fruit and vegetable intake. That's true. That's okay. the take home. Yeah. Oh, hi. Um, I went into Coles the other night, and guess what? They got meatless meat, and they got fishless fish. What the hell's going I on? I know. In the world? <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because I've got my um, I've got four t um, nieces who are all in their late teens, early twenties, and they come to our house for a barbecue, and they rock up with their vegan patties. And my husband likes to be horrible and dribble as he's taking things off the barbecue over them anyway he teases them and they all jump in and go don't do that uncle Rick. don't do that we're vegan and I I saw I took one of these packets and I had a look at it and it was just a list of chemicals it was really shocking and I said to them just don't eat any of it like don't try to make and they said oh but it's so good it tastes like a hamburger I was like, it tastes like a schnitzel and I just looked at them I said but then why aren't you having oh because we don't want to eat animals Time for another wine. <laughs> you know, it was really, I think, for me, if you're not going to eat, if you're vegan, which I have a lot of respect for people that are vegetarian, vegan, I was vegetarian a long time myself, um, you can make a really easy, cheap, healthy alternative of a chickpea patty or something at home. It's not going to taste like a hamburger. It's going to taste like a chickpea patty. That's okay, because that's what you're eating, you know? So I, th I feel the same way. I, my, the mind boggles. They've got mints, which isn't mints. And it would be okay if it was natural and, and, and was good for you. But when you read down the list of preservatives and things like that, I don't think that it's probably the way to go for health. But we're going to keep going, because otherwise we'll run out of time and I'll get the music part of that. Oh, sorry. Your, yours was about butter. So, there's my... Look, that's a probably a bit of an oversight. Butter would fit under the... That's a really good pickup. Butter would fit under the saturated fats. Yep. Having said that, again, nutrition not being as simple as it is, if you're going to spread something on your toast, say you're having Vegemite, there's no way you can have anything but butter but you would have butter over margarine, right? Because margarine's, again, just a list of chemicals, right? But yes, it would fit under the saturated fats aisle, yeah. Um, so these are some of the um, oils and things. So the seed oils, if they're left to expose. So these oils are good oils. I'm just trying to think how I can say it to you. They're good oils. They're oils that you should use, but you should only use them if they're not heated or are left exposed to oxygen and light because these are the oils that are unstable. It's 
how you say, so in biochemistry, they're not stable oils. Dairy. I put this in because this is one that often um, gets asked about. So low-fat dairy, so that go back to the 80s and everybody wanted low-fat dairy. Look, there is no need to limit. If you're choosing dairy products, go for the full-fat dairy, but limit the flavoured dairy. So the damage isn't in the fat, it's in the flavouring. So yogurt's the first thing that springs to mind. Yogurt, when the Greeks made yogurt, it was sour and it's always been sour. When the Australians got yoghurt, we didn't want it to be sour, so we made it sweet and we put fruit and all sorts of things into it. It's not supposed to be a sweet food. I promise you, and I hand on heart promise you, if you feed a child Greek yoghurt from the start, they will only know Greek yoghurt. My three and a half, almost four-year-old will only eat Greek yoghurt, and we went to a breakfast buffet and I, she said, I want yoghurt on my muesli and I said okay and I thought it was Greek yogurt and it turned and she took one mouth and she goes mummy it's disgusting it's off and I thought oh and I tasted it, it was vanilla <laughs> so that just goes and then my husband just teased me about being a dietitian look what you've done to our children but <laughs> there you go so we are only accustomed to it being sweet so it's the same with um when you're choosing anything just go for the unflavored natural full fat and just have less of it no, so it's not the chemicals. The lo there's nothing wrong with low fat. That's what I should also... Oh, there's your butter versus margarine. I knew it was in there. I thought it was before. It's not your... Um, it's not the chemicals that bring the fat down. So milk's really interesting. There's actually nothing wrong with low fat or skim milk. And all milk is treated. So I'll, I'll, let you, I'll tell you how it's done. In Australia, say you've got dairy farmers. Dairy farmers contracts out to a whole bunch of dairy farms, Right? So they've got farms in New South Wales, farms in Victoria, farms in wherever, outside of Canberra. And all these cows are eating different sorts of grass, different rainfall levels, different nutrients. And then their farmers are milking them and then the big milk trucks all come to a central point and dump all the milk from all these farms into one big vat. Now that milk doesn't arrive 9% fat. That milk arrives all different, all different cows. So the first thing they do is they heat treat it and then they strip all the fat out of it. So they put the fat in one container and the milk in another container. Then they put back whatever it is, 0.5% fat. That becomes skim milk. They take a portion of it, bottle it. They put back 3% fat, take a portion of it, bottle it, put back 9% fat and bottle the rest and that's full cream milk. So they're not actually processing skim milk any more than they're processing full cream milk. Okay, because it all needs to be regulated. I don't know. So I grew up in the UK and I have very vague memory because I'm only 20. Nine, <laughs> not, but anyway, I grew up in the UK and I vaguely remember getting the milkman come when I was a toddler and sometimes mum would go wee because she'd have heaps of fat on the top, right, heaps of cream and then sometimes she'd get really upset because she'd only have a little bit. But of course here we want our cream distributed through the milk so there's emulsifiers and all sorts of things to do that and we want it to be even because heaven forbid we don't know exactly what's in that milk. So because of all the regulation, it's all processed. So don't let anybody tell, unless you're going for the, you know, unhomogeneous. If it's in a supermarket and it's regulated, then it's all processed. So don't let anybody tell you that full cream milk is more natural and that you shouldn't be having skim milk because it's full of sugar. Skim milk does have higher amount of sugar, but it's the naturally occurring sugars because by volume, if you've taken the fat out, you've got more of the protein in there and more of the carbohydrate. And if you look, it's actually not that much extra sugar. So personally, I don't really love the taste of full cream milk, um, so I'll drink the light. Um, if you're trying to lose weight, it would be a good idea to probably switch to the skim and save yourself some fats. If you don't care and you enjoy full cream, then have the full cream. It, over the course, it's not going to... Unless you're drinking litres and litres and litres of it, it's not going to um, make a huge difference. So there's the butter versus margarine. Consume both in moderation is the DAA or the dietitian's research line. Personally, I would say go butter. So including healthy fats. So these are the good fats. This is what we need in our diet. We don't need it in abundance and abundance. I had a hairdresser say to me once, oh my God, you're a dietitian, amazing. You've got to help me, I can't lose weight. And I said, oh, okay, great. That's what I want to do. <laughs> and then she goes, yeah, I'll tell you what I'm eating. And she goes through her breakfast and then she gets to lunch and she goes... And then I just have like a salad for lunch and I have 
spinach, cucumber, da 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 da, and then I have like an avocado, maybe two. <laughs> and the avocado, maybe two. I said, oh, I'm going to stop you right there. So a quarter of an avocado is a serve of avocado per day. And you spread avocado like you would spread butter. Okay, very high in fats, very high in calories, but good fats. So cardioprotective, helps your skin, helps your hair, all the good stuff you see. So don't hold back on it. And look, don't hold me to that. Say, I, can, oh, I was only told I was allowed a quarter of an avocado. That's a serve. But you might choose to have two or three serves. So, you know, you might have a... If you're like me, I pick it all out of the salads at the <laughs> when I'm going through. <laughs> don't invite me to a barbecue. Um, so you can choose avocado, hummus or tahini are good things to spread on sandwiches. Again, if you've got kids that are really young, just start doing it. Don't even talk to them about butter and, unless it's Vegemite. Um, start doing this on their sandwiches. Cheese and avocado, tahini and honey. Um, hummus. We have hummus wraps every day almost at the moment because it's brown. <laughs> Does anyone else's kids go on that brown diet, the beige diet? <laughs> hummus fits into that, luckily. Um, Another thing about just on the healthy eating, balancing your plate. So this is what plates should look like. Dinner, lunch, breakfast, it's a bit harder. Breakfast, we like you to have a little bit more, um, a little bit more protein, a little bit more carbohydrate, but you do that by default anyway, by the types of foods we eat for breakfast. But certainly when it comes to lunch and dinner, half a plate of fruits, uh, of vegetables or salad, quarter of a plate of um, protein, quarter of a plate of carbohydrate. And it's a really easy, visual to get. Yep. Reduce your salt intake. So that goes, that's obvious, that's to do with blood pressure. And in children it's to do with kidneys. How to reduce salt? That's obvious too, but there's a lot of salt hidden in food, so you have to be very careful. We give very little regard to salt as adults, I think. We don't seem to care but you need to care. Um, processed meats are very high in salt unless you go for a nitrite free. Processed meats are also probably one of the only things I don't have in the house, personally, and that's because there's been a lot of studies linking it directly to bowel cancer so, and red meat consumption. So we need to be really, really careful with that and the salt factor is one of those reasons. Reduce alcohol, easier said than done in certain phases of life, especially with, when the weather's starting to get good. Um, the standard or the government guidelines is two to three alcohol-free days a week. When I'm advising people in private practice, I say make those alcohol-free days in succession. So give yourself a real break from alcohol because when you go back to pouring a drink, you will pour less. If you drink every night, you drink slowly, sneakingly start to get a bit bigger. If you find you have a couple of days without alcohol, then when you pour a drink, it'll go back to just being a nice, small, manageable glass of wine. So that's it. Um, right. Water. Two to three litres of water a day. That seems like an awful lot. If you've got a drink bottle, and I've got mine somewhere in the car, I think, but um, a 600ml drink bottle, I just make sure I fill that twice during my working day. So that's 1.2 litres. I've usually had two coffees by then. There is water content in that. You know, you can count things along the way. But aim, aim during your shift. You have a litre and a half, maybe, and then the rest of the water you'll drink at home. All right, so I wanted to talk, this is specific to you guys. So barriers to good nutrition faced by the nursing profession. So there might be ones I've missed, but this is where I think I've done my research. So the first one's really obvious, is shift work. So not all of you are shift workers, but it is a, it is a part of your profession and it is a risk. And certainly um, the midwives that I've encountered have all been incredibly, incredibly, incredible shift workers. They just bounce in for their night shift as if, you know, they've just gotten out of bed. Oh, it's amazing. So the long-term effects, um, well, the short-term effects, I suppose, during a shift, the biggest one that you look at is dehydration. So again, they've done studies and things on nurses that at the end of their shift, they're really dehydrated. And, I, and then they anecdotally will say, well, I didn't want to drink too much because I don't want to pee because I don't have time to pee. Okay? Well, that's just crazy. I mean, it even sounds crazy, doesn't it? What other profession would do that? 
a lawyer or something, go, oh, no, I'm not going to have a drink because what if I have to go to the toilet? And the bowel, everything suffers then. So you become dehydrated, you become constipated, you become, you know, everything. Dry skin from not just the dehydration but the washing your hands all the time. Being in, I know when I'm in the hospital, I just crave fresh air at lunchtime, you know, because you're just in the ward and it's just the lights and the... Um, and it's quite warm in a lot of those wards. So these are all things to think about. Managing shift work is really hard. So you need to aim to maintain a regular eating pattern regardless of your shift. So your three main meals and your snacks within a 24-hour period, this is what they say works the best and what we know works the best from a nutritional perspective, is to try and keep it the same. So eating food, so eating, if you do a night shift and you finish at breakfast time, have breakfast when you finish. Don't have a dinner meal and then go to bed. So that's um, the first thing. If you're doing a shift overnight, so my first ever boyfriend was a doctor who I met at uni, and um, he was doing his he was an intern. He was doing his first set of night shifts, and he was all like, and I made him a smoked salmon salad. And he came home and he said to me, "So that's the last thing I felt like eating at 1am. Please don't ever pack that for me again." So I think yeah, you've got to obviously pack. I think what works overnight is the small snacks. The other thing that happens overnight in hospitals, of course, is everything's shut. So if you do run out of food, or you didn't bring enough food, or you don't feel like what you packed, you've only got a vending machine, or biscuits, hospital biscuits. And haven't we all lived on hospital biscuits? I had like 22 weeks of morning sickness last year, and ate, I can't even tell you how many hospital packets of biscuits. <laughs> oh dear, I can't even look at them now. So another barrier to your work is the access to healthy foods. As we said, it needs to come from home and it needs to be portioned, but pack enough. Don't set out thinking, I'm only going to take this much food and that's all I'm going to consume in my shift and I'm going to be healthy because I want to lose weight. Take extra food because you will get hungry and if you get hungry, you will resort to the biscuits or you'll resort to the, um, the vending machines. At home, do bulk cooks. So um, when you're cooking at home, do a big bulk and freeze. The best thing I can say to do would be um, soups. Soups are great. Everybody's got access to toast at work. So you can bulk freeze in you know, individual amounts, a really hearty lentil and vegetable or something along those lines soup, and then just grab it out of the freezer, put it in your bag. It's, and by lunchtime, you can just stick it in the microwave. Um, so yeah, you've probably got lots of ideas, but that's the biggest one. The other one that I think has been a bit of a game changer for most people in the last couple of years has been the online grocery delivery. So I have been known to get home from work, jump on and do a delivery for, for the next day to become delivered. I get everything delivered now, I'm not going, not going to the shops anymore. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a, the online grocery delivery is a bit of a life changer because you get to see, it stops all the impulsive buying, so you don't walk down the aisles going, oh, actually, that looks nice. You go on with intent, you get what you need, it adds up in the corner, so in the corner of the screen it starts t tallying your, what you're spending, which you can't do when you're walking around a shop, so you don't get to the checkout and go, oh God, as it's clocking up, which I always do. Um, and then, yeah, it just gets delivered to your door so you don't actually have to go, and, it's, and, it, and now you can do it without the plastic bags, so it's a crate delivery, so it's really, really good. And lots of shops are cottoning on, so there's um, Harris Farm now have a fantastic delivery service. It's about the same price as Coles. Okay, so another big barrier for you guys is the trauma and stress. And this is another unique thing to nursing and midwifery is that you see things, unfortunately, that people shouldn't really have to deal with and um, on a fairly regular basis. So this obviously has a huge impact on your health. Some people go through a trauma at work and they don't feel hungry for a long time or they feel quite shaken up. Um, other people's response might be to go home and indulge. Whatever it is, there are um, obviously services and counsellors and things available for that time, but the immediate impacts of trauma mean that you might stop eating and drinking properly for a while and you just need to be aware of that and even sort of just, if you're making yourself happy, stay hydrated, that's the most important thing. The long-term stresses, and this is a great statistic, Stress and burnout in 10 to 70% of nurses. <laughs> that's pretty got everyone covered, hasn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what they say. So it is a, it's a high stress and burnout job. 
So you've just obviously got to be aware of that. Lots of reasons for it. So stress and its impact on good nutrition. So the stress hormones have a lot to, um, to do with it. So when you're feeling that you are overwhelmed or in a highly stressed situation, it's the sympath sympathetic nervous system which kicks in. So that's your flight or fight response. Um, and you don't flight when you're a nurse. You get in there and you deal with it. So when you're operating from this place, you have adrenaline surging through your body. Then you have an insulin, um, you have a blood sugar response to it. Then you have an insulin response to that. So you are constantly in this state of stress. And that can go on for hours, but you can end up slowing your digestion right down. And also, you can end up at going on for days. And the, only, and the other thing about it is, when you're um, constantly in this state, you don't realise you're in this state anymore. So you can, if, you're some, if you're in a situation where, say, you're a midwife and you're working with special care babies and you're seeing a lot of things that you know, are upsetting or dealing with more than mothers, you can end up in this constant state of upheaval and not even notice that you're in that anymore because it's become your new normal. The body's a very amazing thing and it readjusts quite quickly to its new state of normal. So a level of adrenaline in the body, it will, continue, it will become adrenalised, you will become fatigued to that adrenaline, okay? Very, like within months. It's the same as when you've got a diabetic patient who constantly runs high. Their body just starts to, no, say sorry, they have, um, yeah, they'll constantly run high, this is a good example, and then they'll start to have symptoms of feeling low or hypos, and their blood sugar's four or five, and you think, how's that right? It's because their blood sugar's used to being 12 or 13, so their body's readjusted and it's done it quickly. So it would, and it's the same with stress, but we don't notice it with stress. And it's usually not until you have a complete breakdown at some point that you think, shit, I am actually super stressed. This job is putting a lot of pressure on me and changes get made. But just have to start being aware of it quickly because it impacts on your health and it impacts on your ability to absorb nutrients and things like that as well. Decision making. So chronic stress and tiredness is renowned for poor decision making. Um, and as nurses, this is what you have to do. Pretty much your entire shift is make decisions. Decisions about who you're going to prioritise, which bell you're going to answer first, whether you're going to go to the toilet or not. You know, like you're constantly making decisions. It's not a job that you'll get to sit behind a desk and um, deliberate over things. So, and it becomes a cycle. And the last thing is your gut health. So this is another having its moment in the sun at the moment, gut health. But we have also always known that our gut health is closely related to our mental well-being. I suppose just more studies and more funding has come for, forward now and they're being able to prove just how important it is. But it's linked to a lot of different diseases and we do know that we've got a lot of serotonin receptors down on the gut and they talk to the serotonin receptors in our brain. So good gut health usually equates to men good mental health. How do you improve your gut health? Oh, you eat lots of fruits and vegetables. So you're eating foods that are high in fibre, that are giving the good bacteria a chance. Probiotic foods, so your yogurts and things like that. Fermented foods. If you're not used to having fermented foods, it's a great thing you can chuck into salads and reducing um, red meat intake. So tips specifically for nurses. So these are the ideas, and some of my nurses at my work, I ran past and they said, yeah, yeah, they're all great, Catherine. Yeah, you're going to come and do that for me? But, you know, <laughs> it is, it's hard. But um, as I said, the soup one seems to work well. You can get a lot of things in cans and tins that aren't necessarily bad. If you get rice pre-cooked in a little thing, I'm, I'm a part environmentalist, like I don't like to see a lot of waste, but... You know, you've got to prioritise your health sometimes, so buying a little container of rice that you peel the corner off and put in the microwave for a minute, buying a can of tuna that you chuck on top, a little bit of salady stuff on top of that, or some balsamic vinegar. You know, I've got really nice food. Hard-boiled eggs on toast, so you can bring the eggs already from this. I do this sometimes if I'm working super early, because sometimes I go to work at six, um, and I'll take two hard-boiled eggs, a little bit of quarter of an avocado, a little bit of avocado, and then I just steal some toast from the kitchen and I just spread it on and make myself that. 
Um, falafels are fantastic. Falafels are so, so, so healthy. So you can, make, you can make a batch of falafels and freeze them and then get them out and put them with a salad. Wraps, stir-fried veggies, stick some cashews and noodles in. Sometimes with meals, though, it's hard and it's easy to go for snacks. So this is a snack list which I've comprised. Um, and this is a snack list that I used to give out to lots of all my private patients. And you'll get, um, you'll get a copy of these slides, but yeah. Sometimes it's easier just to have two or three snacks during the day instead of a meal when you're on the run, and that's okay too. How are we going for time? Ten minutes. And the last tip is plan your day. So always plan your day. So when I was at, when I was at high school, somebody said to us, failing to plan is planning to fail. And I've never forgotten that. For some reason that's stuck, and it's stuck with me through everything I've done professionally and personally, even like having children and packing that hospital bag. Midwives would probably laugh at when they, they, when I turned up to have my second daughter, um, I had placenta previous, so I had to go into theatre and they were checking me in and they're like, how many bags do you have? And I said, oh, four. And she's like, you're having one baby? I said, yes, but I've got four bags because <laughs> I don't know the gender. And <laughs> she's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> now I look back and I think that Bloody poor woman, she's probably like, we've got a live one in bed, <laughs> But, um, yeah, anyway, I did my thing. I had sent all the boys' clothes home. We were fine. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, but planning your day. So getting up and going, okay, tomorrow I've got to work on early shift. I'm going to have breakfast when I get... Don't wake up and go, like my husband, oh, shit, now I've run out of time for breakfast. It's like, well... <laughs> Why don't you take it with you and have it at work? It's not that hard. Hey, you didn't get the same speech that I got in high school. So, yeah, so um, think about planning. So, yeah, I'm going to be at work early, so I'm actually going to get to work 10 minutes early and have my breakfast and go through my ward list. And, you know, and then I'm, two hours later, I'm going to try and plan and have a snack. Now, I know it doesn't work that simply. I know that buzzers go off and whatever and other people's emotional issues come at you. But at least try. Because if you don't have a plan, then it won't work out at all. So this is one of the things that I've done a lot of work in with um, uh, externally um, with my continuing professional development is the mindful eating because I worked a lot when I first started dietetics like we all did in weight loss because that was back then the buzz, you know, everybody wanted to know how to lose their baby weight or how to, now we know that really, and, and also back then everybody was very weight focused and weight biased because we had a belief which was told to us that if you were overweight, you were unhealthy. We now know, and we see it every day, that weight really doesn't equate to health at all. We have, I have some, I've worked a lot in eating disorders, so I can tell you right now that weight doesn't equate to health. But, you know, I often will have a patient sitting opposite me that might be in a larger body, and I look at their blood work, and it's perfect. They are so healthy, and their diet is healthy, and everything that they're doing is great. I can have someone sitting across from me in, an, in a normal-sized normal body or a body that we deem to be, you know, of a normal size, and their blood work's atrocious and they're eating very poorly with very poor lifestyle choices. So, I mean, we see it every day in practice, so it's not news. Um, but the mindfulness is key. So it's about being aware of what you're eating and about consciously sitting down and enjoying a meal. So when we were working in, in, um, in trying to get people, helping people lose weight, that sort of phenomenon where we were going, well, hang on a minute, this person's really, really healthy and this person's really, really not, but their body types are telling us something different. We were trying to figure it all out. And then we got into this thing about mindfulness and weight loss because even though people were eating very, very healthy, a lot of the time they were overeating because they were eating mindlessly. So it was like eating in front of the television and you go, oh, I'm just gonna have this piece of cake while I watch my favorite show. And then before you know it, you look down and you're like, oh, the cake's gone. <laughs> I don't remember eating that. I'll have, it, have another piece. And it happens all the time. It happens to me with wine. <laughs> I pour wine and I sit down and I start doing reading something and I look at mine and I go, oh, oh. Well, I didn't even taste that. I'll have to have another glass. But it's because I'm distracted, right? So what you have to do when you're eating 
is become very mindful about it. So there's a few things that happen with mindful eating, but the biggest thing about your health and about not overeating and not doing, um, you know, not eating when you're not hungry is checking in with your hunger cues. So going to yourself, am I hungry? How hungry am I? Is this meal going to satisfy me? And am I going to stop when I'm finished? Or when I'm full? Because you don't have to eat. Con con when I was little, my mum and dad used to make me sit at the table till I finished eating. Did everybody else have that? And also, did your meals go like this? I was laughing with my sister about this the other day. We're having spaghetti bolognese tonight, kids. Here's your spaghetti and here's your sauce. Because meat was expensive and she was feeding a lot of kids. And what did we want? Plain pasta. And it filled you up, right? So we all grew up on these huge amounts of carbohydrates and very little protein. And we've flipped it all around. So our kids now, I just want plain pasta, Mum. No, we don't have plain pasta. You eat it with the sauce or you don't eat it at all. I don't mind. It, we've changed the way we're thinking about everything now. But with the um, mindfulness, it's about checking in with your hunger. So that whole thing about you will sit at the table until your plate's empty because your mother cooked it for you, that's gone. And we teach that right to children now as well. You will sit at the table until everybody's finished, you'll have manners, but you won't necessarily need to eat everything on your plate, okay? And, and a good line that we use with kids is, um, when they say, I don't want any more, have you had enough to eat? Yes, is your tummy full? Yes, great. You can just sit, you don't have to eat it, darling, but you need to sit there till we're finished. It's a different thought around it, and, but we need to do that to ourselves too. So even if you're sitting there, and I think I had a really aha moment about it when my um, stepson, Jackson, um, was about, I don't know, 10, 9, and we took him to McDonald's and he was going banging on about wanting this Big Mac. And I thought, oh, you're going to eat a Big Mac? Bizarre, you're so little. But anyway, that's fine. So we got him a Big Mac. He ate probably three quarters of it and then he pushed it away and he goes, oh, that was so good. I was like, but you didn't finish it. <laughs> I would have finished it, right? Because that's how I was, you, you just kept eating until the food was finished. He was listening, he was so in tune with his body, he's like, no, nah, I'm full, I'm not going to eat anymore. And I thought, see, kids, we do it to us, we learn as we go, don't we, that something tastes good, I'm just going to keep eating it. It's like when I go home and my mum will go, oh, just cut me a small piece, just cut it in half, Catherine. I'm like, you're just going to come back for the other half though, mum. And she goes, oh, I know. So we'll just take the whole piece. It's just like, as soon as we start cutting a cake, I look at my sister, I'm like, here we go. Just cut me a small piece to you. Oh, that's huge. <laughs> so because she can't eat half a piece of cake because it's not what's been programmed for years and years and years and years. And so that can't be undone in your 70s, but it can be undone now. So put the plate, food on your plate, sit down, don't be distracted, eat it. At the end of it, check in with yourself and go, am I full or do I need seconds? No, I'm actually okay. Actually, I think I need seconds. When you go back for seconds, get seconds of everything. Don't just get seconds of the good bit. Get seconds of the vegetables as well. The other thing to bear in mind is you're actually going to get another chance to eat. Okay, so I think we do that, don't we? And patients said to me, I've had patients say to me, I can't just eat that, I'll be hungry. And I'm like, oh, and then they go, and I say, what's wrong with that? I don't want to get hungry. But being hungry is not the worst thing. It's not like we're going to chop, you know, not, it's not terrible. Being hungry is a body cue. It's not something to be afraid of. You know, even the kids, in the, oh, I'm so hungry. It's like, oh, my gosh, that's okay. We can sit and be hungry for 10 or 15 minutes till our next meal, half an hour. You know, it's not a pleasant feeling, but it's a body cue. It's our body saying, you need to eat something now. And you can. it's like going to the toilet is a body cue, okay? So we just need to be more comfortable in that realm. Thank you. I have a question in relation to anxiety and mm. stress and how people um, overeat because mm. of those things. Like right now my son, my 17 year old, um, he is eating a lot and one of the reasons is he's doing HSC. HSC, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a way for him to deal with that anxiety. And it's very hard. I try to give him healthy meals, but mm. it's very hard. So that's part of his age as well, I would say, being 17. Um, and the impulsive nature of a 17-year-old boy, you don't really want to even go down that path. Um, he will probably also be... 
I mean, HSC's cruel, isn't it, to do it at that stage in your life when you're going through huge body change anyway. So males, females' puberty sort of is early on in the teens, so 13, 14, when they're getting their periods and their bodies are changing. Male puberty seems to hit a little bit later and their huge growth spurt happens in their late teens. So he may well just be hungry. And my advice to that, and having had two stepsons who are now in their early 20s who have been through all that, now, yes, I've got more children coming up, but um, when the boys, I mean, they were just devouring food. They're coming home and having cereal after um, being at school all day and then a full meal and then toast and just have the good stuff in the house. Just have the good stuff in the house. Just don't have the shitty alternatives. And then if they'd say to me, you just want chips, I'd be like, well, you can go to the end of Surf Road and catch a bus and you can go to Woolworths and buy chips because we're not having them in the house. And that's sort of lots of... I'd say to them, you've got fruit, free range on all the food in here. We had multigrain um, bergen bread, fruit, vegetables, healthy spreads, anything that you could particularly want. They used to complain, but we have to make everything. It's like... <laughs> Oh my God, <laughs> you know, nothing out of a packet. So if you, if all the food you've got's good, I would say let, if a 17 year old boy, just let him go because he's potentially going through a lot and the HSC is the priority and you can fix everything else later. But a 47 year old man, probably need to rein him in a bit and say, hey, listen, do you really need to be eating all that? Have you been mindful? I've got these slides that the dietitian gave us. We should read these. <laughs> That's how I would approach it. I'm conscious of the time because I'm going to get blasted and I think, you know, I don't want to eat into your... Yeah, everybody's hungry. So this is the hunger scale that I used to go through with people. So a good way of thinking about it as you approach a meal is zero is I'm so, so, so hungry. I've never been more hungry in my life. Or is it one? One. And five is I'm so uncomfortably Christmas Day full. You need to be sitting around a three, Okay. And you can go between a two and a four. So if you think about you get up in the morning and you might be a one, sometimes I am, if I haven't had a decent enough dinner the night before. And then I might eat until I'm a three or four. And then I go about my day and I drop back to a two and then I eat to a three and then I drop back to a two and then I eat to a four. And then I drop back to a one because I'm running around all afternoon doing all the pickups and stuff. And then I get home and I have a snack and I'm back up to a two and I wait for dinner and I get to a four. You know, so all day you're fluctuating and you're checking in with yourself. And when people have had either an eating disorder or they've been very overweight for a long period of time and they've forgotten how to get in tune with their hunger cues, this is the scale we use and we literally get them to check in every hour and write it down. And you would be surprised because one of the big things people do badly is they go, I'm going to be super healthy, I'm going to be really good, I'm not going to overeat. And they get themselves to a one. And what happens then? They overeat to a five. And then they're really, really full and uncomfortable and then they get the guilts and go, oh no, like now I've blown it. Oh, I can't eat again now and they get themselves back to a one and it bounces from one to five. You just need to be hovering around the middle so that your body's sort of... It's like putting a walking past a fireplace and putting a log on the fire every time you walk past and it burns evenly all day rather than letting it go almost out and then putting heaps of wood on it and having a massive fire again. Um, yeah. Intermittent fasting is a whole other thing that is very evidence-based and it seems to be great. The only trouble I've had with the intermittent fasting with private patients is lifestyle. Like they say, oh, I'm on a, uh, you know, a restricted day and I've been asked to go out for dinner. <laughs> what do you do then? So if you can fit it into your lifestyle, there is a lot of evidence behind it and you just need to probably check in with a uh, doctor or somebody and get some bloods done before you start. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a whole other kettle of fish. We're just talking about like everyday stuff, getting a handle on your eating. Okay. The other thing is if you do want to eat healthy and then you go and you have something like in the after, on a Sunday afternoon, you have a whole packet of chips and dip or something because that's where my brain goes when I'm overeating. Um, don't throw in the towel and go, oh, I've done it now and keep eating and then devour a whole chocolate cake. You go, <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's fine, I'm human and I'll wait till I'm back down to about a two and then I'll eat again. Someone was saying to me, it's like, you know, if you were driving your car and you hit, hit a post and you dented one panel, you don't get out of your car and then go and dent every panel because <laughs> you dented one panel. You think, oh, shit, that was unfortunate. <laughs> I better park facing this way so my husband doesn't see it. No. <laughs> I, I've done that. <laughs> he goes, why did you back into the 
driveway. You're never back in. I was like, so, because. <laughs> um, I, did, I just wanted to tell you before you saw it. Um, yeah, so don't do that. Do, like, if you hit, hit a panel, just go, oh, that's unfortunate, but, you know, I'm not going to write off the rest of the day because of I've overeaten on one snack or... Because you're human. That's going to happen. Addressing non-hungry eating. So this is what we're talking about. This is where you're in the danger zone of overeating. So noticing when it is, where it is. Is it when you're watching Netflix? Is it when you're putting the kids to bed? When the kids are having dinner is a big one sometimes for us mums. We start to pick at things because it's not quite our dinner time. Um, but always check in and go, am I physically hungry or is there something else? Am I bored? Am I stressed? Whatever. Watch how much you're cooking and serving. Separate a third of your meals. This is the stuff I was talking about. Eat slowly and without distraction and check in. And if you're going back for seconds, always have seconds of everything. Don't just have seconds of the good bit. Myth busting. We don't really have time for myth busting because we're cutting to But the, the um, slides are there. Okay, so that was what. And the other one is that one. <laughs> People ask that. People legitimately will say that to me and I go, really? You really think that? You shouldn't probably just have some fruits and vegetables. So there you go. There's my saying. Failing to plan is planning to fail. I love it. Always go for nourishing options. There you go. And we've had... <laughs> <laughs>